Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast series Hate Crime on the Two Islands. This project seeks to explore key aspects of the law reform processes with respect to hate crime that are occurring in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Ireland. My name is Mark Waters and I'm a Professor of Criminal Law and Criminology at the University of Sussex and with me is my colleague and co-host Professor Jennifer Schwepp who is an Associate Professor at the University of Limerick. With our special guests each week who bring a fresh perspective to the issue, we explore themes and developments across our two islands to inform debate and practice. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Hate Crime on the Two Islands. The series explores key aspects of law reform with respect to hate crime in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Ireland. My name is Mark Walters. I'm a professor of criminal law and criminology at the University of Sussex. And my co-presenter on the series is Dr Jennifer Schwepp, who is a senior lecturer in law at the University of Limerick. And in today's session, we asked what might seem like a basic question, but one that is without an agreed answer internationally, and that is, what is a hate crime? With us today to discuss this topic is Professor Neil Chakraborty, Director of the Centre for Hate Studies and a Professor of Criminology at the School of Criminology at the University of Leicester, and Dr. Barbara Perry, Professor in Social Science and Humanities and Director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism at Ontario Czech University. So we're all aware that there are disciplinary differences and indeed differences within disciplines as to what constitutes a hate crime. And so what we want to do today is kind of explore some of those and problematize those differences. But if we go right back to basics, uh, the first question that I'd like us to, to talk about is where did the term hate crime come from? Yeah, and it's something that, you know, I've sort of tried to, to trace myself in terms of the, the term itself rather than the legislation. And that's, that's a bit of a challenge, you know? I mean, obviously the kinds of activities and behaviors we're talking about are ageless. You know, they, they've been with us uh, just endlessly. But in terms of, you know, when it entered the lexicon, um, I think I go back to uh, Val Janess's uh, work looking at the, you know, the, the convergence rights movements post 1960s. And uh, I think in part it emerged out of those, the shared interest encountering various forms, obviously, of oppression, marginalization directed towards uh, targeted communities. And amongst that collection of, of strategies, of course, was uh, was hate crime, was violence. And so I, I think it's really conceptually something that emerged out of uh, out of those movements and that collection of movements, uh, and then became embedded, especially in the United States, in legislation that we started to see emerge in the 1980s and, and more rapidly in the 1990s uh, as well. So I, in the North American context, I think that that's where we trace it back. And, and I'm just going to say, too, that, uh, you know, and I've written about this and I've talked about this endlessly that I'm, I'm quite quite sad that we are again especially in the North American context sort of saddled with this term hate crime because of the the connotations associated with hate I think and it enables people to say that we can't prosecute emotions that sort of thing so to focus on it as an emotion I think is uh, is is really problematic and enables a whole array of uh, of critiques that we, you know, we've seen from legal experts as well as from, you know, far right activists. So uh, interesting um, collective that, that comes together around that. You know, when we talk about definitions, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, 
yeah, I think again, in the North American context, that would be my assessment of, of where the language comes from. I think there are slightly different origins here, here in the UK. I think the term has a much more recent history. From my point of view, I think I started to really recognize the term in the late nineties and the early noughties. And that came in the wake of a series of high profile tragedies, you know, like the murder of Sim Lawrence in 93 and the ensuing McPherson report in, in 98. And, and I think also the, um, the nail bomb attacks in 99 in Brick Lane, Soho, Brixton and other tragic events that followed. I think it's a shame and it's often the case that it takes tragedies to bring people together to, to identify ways of responding to a collective problem. And I think looking positively at the term, there are loads of flaws with the terminology as Barb's hinted at already, but one of the positives, I think, it, it really started to bring people together to, to recognise a shared sense of hostility experienced by minoritized groups. I remember during that period that the terminology seemed to kickstart a wave of academic conversations that hadn't been taking place before. There was much more policy engagement and it felt like a catalyst for improved awareness, I guess, across the piece amongst the academic community, but also within within practitioner and policy communities as well so so that was a real positive for me yeah it's interesting in terms of the timelines of the uh, the the academic uh, the scholarship around it i think that that also differed in terms of when it when it happened i mean here i think we often point to levin and mcdevitt's rising tide of of bloodshed as you know one of the first comprehensive treatments uh, of hate crime and that was uh, obviously early 90s 90 or 91 so that i think started a, a quite a flurry in in north america and i think it was a little bit later in uh, in the UK and other parts of Europe. I wonder then if both of you could start us off then with a definition of what you think hate crime is. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and how we define it, I guess, depends on, you know, whether we're talking about legalistic definitions or conceptual definitions. And obviously, when you're dealing with law enforcement, they want to understand it from a, a legal perspective. And I think there's sort of shared parameters uh, in terms of legal definitions, you know, very narrowly as, you know, obviously, these are predicate crimes that are motivated by hate, bias, or prejudice the language, the language differs there. The list of protected categories differs. I understand you're going to have another uh, podcast on exactly that question, but I think those in the field probably are familiar. Many are familiar, I think, with the definition that I offered way back when. Let's not even talk about how long ago that was, but uh, you'd think I'd have it memorized by now, and I don't, so I'm just going to read it as a reminder and then sort of unpick it a little bit. So hate crime involves acts of violence and intimidation, usually directed towards already stigmatized and marginalized marginalized groups. Uh, as such, it's a mechanism of power and oppression intended to reaffirm the precarious hierarchies that characterize a given social order. It's intended to simultaneously create, recreate the threatened, that is real or imagined, hegemony of the perpetrator's group and the appropriate subordinate identity of the victim's group. It is a means of marking both the self and the other in such a way as to reestablish their proper relative positions as given and reproduced by broader ideologies and patterns of social and political inequality. So there's a lot there. One of the things that I would change about that definition is to add not just to affirm and, and reaffirm, but to in fact challenge those hierarchies as well. I mean, you know, statistically, it's much rarer for us to see, you know, anti-white violence, for example, or anti-straight uh, violence or anti-cis uh, violence, but, you know, it, it does occur. 
And I think that that really is about challenging those hierarchies and challenging that imposed uh, positionality of uh, subordinate groups uh, in particular. So I think it's it's important to acknowledge that. And I think even in that that first book, I did talk about not so much the, the bottom up, but the horizontal violence as well in terms of groups that are them, themselves often targets of hate crime, also using hate crime to to almost jockey or position along those uh, those hierarchies. So I think that's important to add. And some of the other keys, I think, to, to that definition is the insistence on hate as an exercise or an expression of power, you know, and which implies then that it is structural, right? It's embedded in a whole array of other strategies that are similarly intended to marginalize or constrain or perhaps silence particular communities. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not sort of a standalone strategy in that arsenal, if you will. Uh, you know, as Iris Marion Young suggests, right? Violence, structural violence is embedded in a whole array of other strategies. Hate crime, I think, is also an ongoing project and it's part of uh, a broader ongoing project. It, and it often isn't a one-off. And I think that's the other thing to keep in mind, right? That people and communities who experience hate crime are likely to experience it again and again on an ongoing basis. And that's part of what instills the fear, I think, and the anxiety that it can happen uh, anytime. And I think the last point to, to highlight there, and this is, you know, this is quite obvious, and we talk about hate crime as a, as a message crime, obviously. And I think that that's just so key to, uh, to highlight that it really isn't just about the individual victim, but in fact, the impacts extend to the, uh, the broader community as well. It is a, a warning off. It is a message that they're not valued, they don't belong. And one of the things more recently I've been looking at is not just the way that it affects, you know, the, the targeted community or similar targeted communities, other faith communities, for example, but the way that it also affects the broader society and our, our core ideals uh, around inclusion, respect for, uh, for, for diversity, those sorts of things. It also is an assault on, on those values, not just on the community, but on a broader society. So that divisiveness, that, that separation that it creates, I think is obviously one of the, the damages to, uh, to the broader society. I guess, yeah, one, one last point I think I wanted to make, and this is really, and I think about the work that Neil and Steve Jade Hardy have done around everyday hate, that sort of thing, you know, where people aren't necessarily conscious, right, of that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to oppress these people because they've stepped out of line. But because those those narratives, those ideas, those prevailing images and expectations are so embedded in our collective psyche, there are particular communities that are are more vulnerable, right? That it there's this broader message that uh, allows uh, hatred to be uh, perpetrated uh, against them. And so we, we look at anti-Asian and anti-Semitic violence in the context of COVID, for example. So we're extending those long-held narratives about dangerous Asians uh, and, you know, the Jews who want to control society. They're extended uh, in this context and provide the rationale for, for violence uh, and hate crime in this, in this context. Thanks, Bob. I, I just want to kind of rewind slightly and, and challenge you on one part of, of how you've sort of defined hate crime. Perhaps Neil can, can come in afterwards as well. That is that as part of the definition, you've, you, you started off by speaking about motif. You know, it is a crime motivated by some kind of bias or hostility. And as part of your definition, you go on to look at 
whether someone has intentionally done something to reaffirm the precarious hierarchies that characterize a given social order. So I'm wondering, does hate crime, does a perpetrator of hate crime have to consciously be intending to reaffirm a hierarchy? You know, when you're talking of power, Mm. can hate crimes be committed where someone does that unconsciously or perhaps it's not their intention, but they do it recklessly? Mm -hmm. Because they have have very specific meanings in law, don't they, Mark? So the term intention and motivation... Yeah, and absolutely, and that's one of the that's one of the, the conversations, especially in the uh, the legal scholarship, isn't it? As about, is about right? Is it about the exercise of that hostility, or is it about the the intention itself? And I think from from my definition, and that's sort of what I was getting at when I was talking about sort of the everyday hate, where we are, you know, we're sort of as I said, embedded in these kinds of ideas about who is a legitimate, who is not a legitimate target uh, of violence, that that is, is it, it may well be un- unconscious, that it is something, you know, I often talk about the climate of hate, right, or the environment of hate that enables not just the violence, but enables the, the hostility or the vilification of particular communities. It becomes part of the taken for grantedness of the way that we understand the place, the role, the position of some groups relative to others. Uh, again, unconsciously, it's part of the, the collective psyche and not just the individual psyche. I was going to ask you, Neil, where where do you position yourself in this? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point that, that Mark's raised. I think throughout my research, I've found that many offences, they're not always inspired by a sense of entrenched prejudice, but instead can arise from a departure from kind of standard norms of behaviour, from inebriation and inability to control language, casualised forms of behaviour. There's, there's, there are lots and lots of factors. And so recklessness, as Mark puts it, I, I think is relevant here to the realities of understanding hate crime perpetration and also to the realities of understanding how that plays out for victims too. So I think it is a little bit nuanced, a bit more nuanced than we might have first imagined. That said, I return to Barb's framework time and time again because I think that emphasis on power and structure is so relevant to everything. Like, even if it's not always recognised and appreciated by perpetrators or by victims or by agencies who could potentially do something about it, it's there. It lies, if, if we are to respond effectively, those structural problems need to be addressed. So it's only by having a framework which acknowledges the relevance of power and, and, and structural factors that we can be, begin to unpick those realities. So I, I think the framework is, is, is still live. It's still one that... We talk about an endlessly quote uh, when writing. It's one that we teach. I guess within my studies, another recurring theme is that many policymakers, practitioners, and members of the public just don't get it. They don't understand the term hate crime. I've worked with nearly two thousand, well, more than two thousand victims now over the past ten years, and relatively small numbers of those are familiar with the term hate crime, even though they regularly encounter what we describe as hate crime in all sorts of different forms. So there's a problem there. I think there's a big disconnect between the kinds of conversations that we have within our echo chambers, quite frankly, in the hate crime world and what plays out at a grassroots level. And so I feel if we want to shape policy and real life responses to hate crime, then it's incumbent on us to construct and present definitions in a way that has meaning to to people in everyday situations. So that's why I 
I tried to develop with, with Stevie J. Hardy a more empirically granted definition, which sees hate crime as any act of violence or hostility directed towards people on the basis of their identity, their difference or their perceived vulnerability. It's, it's quite uh, well, it's a relatively short definition. It's deliberately broad and inclusive because I think we wanted to recognise those microaggressions that consistently play a part in the routine experiences of so many hate crime victims, but they're constantly normalised and trivialised, but they need to be recognised if we're going to do something about the problem. But equally, I think it recognises that many victims aren't subjected to hate crime purely because of their membership of a particular identity group. It's also because they're seen as somehow different or somehow vulnerable in the eyes of the perpetrator. So, so that's part of the reason for going down a slightly different route. Neil, can I just, I, I would like to talk to you about vulnerability even mm. and difference, and, and we might just talk about that in a moment. But just to pick up on what you said there about microaggressions, you know, be, being part of this, your definition of a hate crime, because from a, a legal perspective, certainly when I see the term hate crime, I think crime, right? I, I think that there must be a crime involved or at least something that is criminal in nature. Whereas microaggressions, I would see as much further down, not that they're trivial, but they're, they don't pass that threshold of criminality that we have. So, so does your definition of hate crime, do you think it is that inclusive? And can I ask you to just explore why, why yeah. you, you think it is? Yeah, really good question. I guess there's a couple of things that I'd say in response to that. I, I think, yeah, my, my framework would include non-criminal incidents, which feels counterintuitive when you use the term hate crime. But I think decades of research has shown that hate crimes are rarely about hate and they're not exclusively about crime either. And the way in which police forces across England and Wales are obliged to record hate crimes is that they have to record hate incidents as well, non-criminal incidents. So from a victim's point of view and from a practitioner's point of view, that distinction between what's a criminal offence and a non-criminal offence starts to blur with the relatively ambiguous concept that we have with hate crime. So for me, if that's a reality to victims and public audiences and to practitioner audiences, then we as academics need to, to respond to that by having an equally broad and inclusive definition. I also think it's important to be inclusive and broad because that represents the reality of what hate crime means to people who are affected by it. I, I'm sure you guys will say the same when you've you've experienced your own encounters of hate crime, but I rarely tend to think I've been subjected to, to violence and that I haven't reported, but the more frequent cases that, that I've encountered have been what we refer to as, as microaggressions, being, being stared at repeatedly, being spat at, being pushed, being called horrible names. Just last year, my wife had to put up with uh, a, a, the concept of a takeaway being chucked at her from a car passing by and some horrible racist abuse being thrown towards her. That, that, that happens. We don't report it. Uh, and we don't report it because we don't think it's serious enough to be taken seriously, to, to be recognised. Mm by the police and the criminal justice system and yet that's the debt for me I'm very fortunate because I can deal with it and it happens very relatively rarely but that's the reality so often day in day out for countless hate crime victims so I think as I've said it's incumbent on us to to be inclusive and the last thing I'll say Jennifer in response to that point I think it's okay for there to be a difference between how the criminal law interprets things and how police forces recognise hate crime. I think there's a need to build bridges between the police 
and marginalised disadvantaged communities. And so it, there can be many advantages to having a very inclusive framework at that reporting stage. For me, and we can get onto this maybe, I think that could be an opportunity to triage, to start to recognise that a public health response to hate crime could be far more advantageous, not just for victims or perpetrators, but for the criminal justice process itself, which is overclogged. It, it is in, it's interesting, sorry, Mark, it's interesting that Neil said it, it's not hate, but it's not a crime either. So mm-hmm. it, it's really a very abstract notion. It's- yeah, I was going to just follow up on, I wonder what your response would be to the assertion that might say, if you conflate crimes with microaggressions, that you risk undermining the potency of the concepts or people's expectations if they report it. So if you say, oh, well, hate crime involves processes, it involves microaggressions, it involves incidents, and then people say, well, that's a crime, I'm going to report that to the police. And then the police say, well, there's not much we can do about it, actually, because it's not a breach of the criminal law. Or, or the reactions you might get from sort of people who advocate certain human rights and freedom yeah. of expression to say, well, actually, you're giving people an expectation that just holding that view or saying that in public is now a crime when it's not. So I I don't see that as deeply problematic because as my research has shown, and I think a number of other studies have shown that there isn't necessarily that expectation amongst victims of crime that they require or demand a criminal justice response or a punitive outcome. And I think that's often an assumption that's made, but it doesn't hold true from the evidence. And the vast majority of hate crime victims that I've worked with just want it to stop. They want the, the harassment or the hate to, to stop. And that's actually a little bit different to, to requiring a criminal justice intervention. So certainly they would want to report it to the police or a, an equivalent authority. But from there, the process can be quite different. There will be some cases invariably that demand that criminal justice response and an enhanced sentence intervention, if that's appropriate. But there'll be many that can be dealt with outside of the criminal justice system much more holistically and much more meaningfully. And I think that's to the benefit of everybody involved. So I I don't see it as too problematic. Can I I ask just one more question? Because I know Mark is waving, saying that he he wants to also ask a question. So uh, on both of your definitions, because oftentimes when we speak with victims, and I agree with you, Neil, victims experience hate crime in in different ways. Sometimes when we, we speak with victims in our research, they will not necessarily differentiate between a microaggression, a crime, workplace discrimination, refusal of service, and they they will see all that as part of the same process. So where do you draw the line then in terms of hate crime? Is workplace discrimination, is is that part of it? Or being told, no, you can't come into this bar, I'm not going to serve you because you are this, that or the other. Where where do you draw? Because again, from a legal perspective, you know, there's criminal law and (laughs) equality legislation and never the train shall meet. Whereas it seems to me that having a purely or very distinctly victim-led definition will encompass those much broader manifestations of prejudice. Yeah, good point. I think it's challenging, the fact that we have a victim-led definition. I think there are so many advantages to that because we're not relying on police officer discretion in, in, in deciding what's important and what's not. But by having that inclusive victim-led interpretation, it means that essentially anything that a victim feels is a hate crime or a witness feels is a hate crime should be recorded and investigated as a hate crime. So the examples that you've given, I, I think, yeah, conceivably could be 
construed as a hate crime by the victim. I, I think you still require that act of hostility or prejudice as opposed to a feeling that there are prejudicial attitudes going on. You normally need a, a, an action. But yeah, no, certainly there, there are challenges there. But then at the moment, we've seen an improvement in numbers of cases being reported to the police, but we're nowhere near there. We know from research evidence that fewer than one in four cases, one in four eight incidents are actually reported to the police. So we haven't reached saturation point by any stretch. We've still got that disconnect. So I feel if we're going to have that inclusive definition, and that's here to stay, we can't now go back and change the terminology. I don't think in England and Wales we can change policing definitions either because that would require a, a total shift in in public attitudes and policing attitudes so i think we are where we are but what we need is a change in focus where we don't rely exclusively on a criminal justice pathway and we actually can acknowledge that there are different mechanisms of re- responding to a public health epidemic which is what i see hate crime as i don't see it as a criminal justice issue i think it's an epidemic of public health proportions which requires holistic intervention from healthcare and from education so I think that's the the inclusive definition can work within that context. Yeah, and that's sort of the the point where I started the the conversation actually is this tension between legalistic definitions and conceptual definitions. I guess it depends on, you know, what the context uh, that we're working in. And yeah, absolutely. I've seen the same sort of thing in terms of communities that elide all of these forms of, as I said, I mean, they are, this violence is embedded in this whole other array uh, of strategies and and communities recognize that as well. So, and it's also, you know, at the, at the outset, I said uh, it's problematic that we're labeled with this hate crime, but we're also saddled with hate crime, you know, in, in terms of understanding it only from a legal perspective. But it does go beyond that. As you know very well, Jennifer Schwepp, from a soon to be published paper in <laughs> Crime Law and Social Change, where we looked at uh, the continuum of hate. That, and I think that's the way to think about it is those those sorts of behaviors are on a continuum that, you know, well, they don't all rise to that legal threshold conceptually. And in terms of tar- uh, victims' experiences and communities' experiences, they are all wrapped up in the in threat, in risk, uh, in harm. So I think it's important to recognize uh, that continuum. So, you know, in, in a couple of papers I've written around the semantics of hate, talk about more precise language when we're thinking about it conceptually rather than legally, things like things like ethno-violence or targeted violence or calling it what it is, as you do in the UK, uh, right, as racially motivated or religiously motivated violence, which which we don't do here. What's, what's interesting here in the Canadian context amongst those services that take hate crime seriously is that they are, again, not all and not most probably, but they're very concerned about also having communities report hate incidents. Uh, you know, those those lower level forms of harassment that don't rise to that legal threshold. They're very keen to have those reported to them so that they have that documentation so they can see where the hot, hot spots might be emerging so that they can see what the patterns are. So they have evidence should it escalate to, to criminal behavior. So here, law enforcement does recognize that, uh, that continuum. Again, not all, but many. So I think that continuum model and also being cognizant of, are we talking about this, you know, sort of uh, in terms terms of community experiences or from a legal perspective. One of the things I want to follow up with both of you then is what this threat, what this risk of harm relates to. And Neil's definition talks about identity, difference and vulnerability. And Barbara, your definition 
sort of is more anchored to sort of group identity. And I'm just wondering, what is the difference between identity and difference? Can you define difference without referring to identity? What does difference mean if it doesn't mean group identity? If we're looking at harm, what does harm refer to if we're not looking at group identity? And how can that be measured? And how is it distinct from other types of crime? It's a really tricky one. And a lot of the time, they'll be one in the same thing. I guess when I was framing that definition, I wanted to move the focus away from designated identity groups. I, I felt that much of the debate over the previous couple of decades that I've been involved in hate crime work had primarily revolved around which identity groups deserved recognition and which didn't. And I found it quite honestly a bit tiresome because it was taking the debate away from where it needed to be, I think. And instead there would seem to be this, this hierarchy of identity groups where the capacity of some groups to shout louder than others on the basis of having a bit more agency or political clout or lobbying potential. I, I think that became clear and evident. So in reality, I, I, I was tending to find that from a victim's point of view, and again, much of my work is, is through that victim's lens, people couldn't necessarily self-identify with, with, with one particular group. They just said, look, I'm being picked on because I'm different. I'm being targeted because I'm different. And equally talking to perpetrators, I was finding that when trying to unpick motivations out, it's like, well, why? they're different. They don't fit in. So different kept on cropping up time and time again. and. I'm very careful when framing this to talk about perceived difference and perceived vulnerability, but I think those factors are quite relevant in that context. And they also help us to embed intersectionality. Right? We often all talk about the yeah. fact that we have multiple identities, but it's not always explicit within our definitions. And so, again, trying to move beyond identity groups per se and talk about difference and perceived vulnerability more broadly was a way I thought that we could do that. Yeah, and I think, you know, as, as you know, the this whole question of difference is really at the heart of my understanding of, of hate crime generally, but I do see it in terms of identity and, and identity groups. But, you know, not again, as, as Neil says, we're not necessarily aware of why, why we think they're different or what we don't like about, uh, you know, a particular community. But I, I think that, again, it comes back to that notion of, you know, we, we're layered with uh, those circulating narratives that, uh, that we're a part of. And, 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 and perhaps that's why intersectionality is so important, right? It's, it's even the perpetrator, even the victim can't identify that one piece that might have been uh, the motivation because it was all of those, right? So if you're, you know, a, a Black trans male with a disability, you are so different and therefore vulnerable on all of those uh, criteria, if you will, or all of those levels. So yeah, I think it, it really is a challenge. But you know, I, I think that difference remains, I think, central to, to that, our understanding of hate crime. And the, it almost reinforces uh, those differences, right? Or the, the value, uh, may, maybe more importantly, the value, relative value of those differences. I just want to bring the sort of those last two questions together in terms of identity and, and the continuum. You know, you, you can all watch for our forthcoming paper uh, in crime law and social change. Uh, some of the sort of criteria that we've used to compare, uh, and what did we look at? We looked at microaggressions, we looked at hate speech, we looked at hate crime, we looked at genocide, 
terrorism and extremism. And we're interrogating each of those along a, a number of, of different strata, including, you know, are they identity-based? Are the, are the incidents identity-based? Do they reinforce the victim's marginality? Are they harmful to the direct victim? And are there collective victims? And then one of the others where Jennifer and I had uh, some tension was, is there a legal definition? And is that necessary for it to be a hate crime, given the tensions we've talked about in terms of uh, conceptual versus legal definitions? Yeah, we, we really, we didn't quite come to blows for our degree, but... <laughs> well, because by the time we were at that point, I was back home again, so yeah. we were in the same office. <laughs> um, but we, we had long conversations about extremism, didn't we? And, yeah. you know, where extremism fits. So is extremism a hate crime, Neil? Well, I guess with any of these conversations, when we're trying to decide, does hate crime include extremism, genocide? For me, it's... To what to what purpose? What purpose does that serve? So, if we were to include genocide or extremism within the definition, does that benefit the victims? Does it benefit policymakers, public audiences? How does it inform our understanding? Um, so, for me, I'm not sure it serves any purpose by including those kinds of offences within an incredibly broad category of hate crime anyway, because I think there are alternative, more effective resolutions for, for those kinds of offences. I think if we're having a conceptual chat and we're trying to talk about theoretically what can hate involve and what doesn't involve, then of course there's a case for extremism, acts of terrorism, genocide and going beyond that. But when looking at the pragmatic realities, I'm not sure it does anybody any service to try and, and, and broaden the term any further. But, but you include lesser included offences. So, so is that correct? So criminal offences are the limit and, and anything that goes beyond your standard criminal offences like terrorism or genocide don't come within your definition, but microaggressions, potentially workplace discrimination, they do. Yeah, not workplace yeah. discrimination, but yeah, yeah, certainly microaggressions do, Jennifer, because for me, I think that forms part of the continuum that you've been talk talking mm -hmm. about. Any conversation with any hate crime victim, I don't think will will stop and start with one single event. It will be a continuum of incidents and those microaggressions form part of that. I think if we look at a racist murder, for example, the perpetrators are unlikely to have started with the murder. Their, their offending history would have been filled, one would expect, with all kinds of microaggressions that build up towards an end point. So that's why microaggressions, I think, need to be included within that continuum. But I'm not sure it does anybody any service to look beyond those kinds of hate-motivated or hostile actions that affect individual victims. I think the more collective offences of genocide and terrorism can be dealt with through other means. I mean, isn't, isn't it the case that you can have these other concepts and hate crime simultaneously? Just with other crimes, you know, you can have the crime of murder, but then if there's mass murder, it might be a human rights violation, it might be genocide. You know, you can have rape or you can have a crime against humanity, depending on the context. And I, I'd probably say yeah. the same with, mm -hmm. with hate crime. You know, you can define hate crime as, well, I've defined it as sort of prejudice based criminal conduct and that could be in some situations genocide it's just that when it gets to the level of genocide you have different things to consider it doesn't mean that it's it's not a hate crime it just means that it's also genocide and that's brings it into the realm of of, of, of a different type of of criminality and different laws and 
different legal jurisdictions. So I'm not sure we, we necessarily need to say it's either one or the other. It's not mm. mutually exclusive in that sense for me. I think that's Mark, a, good, a couple good, of... Oh, uh, we're all up. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I thought that's, that, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And it makes me think also of some of the recent debates we're seeing around forms of sexual harassment and misogyny. And un, until and unless misogyny is a recognised strand of hate crime, it, it, there, there, are, there are forms of gendered violence that seem to sit in parallel with hate crime. And I'm not sure it's helpful to think of them as one or the other. I think I, I, I think it's, it's absolutely valid to think of them in the context of hate crime, but then also to maybe use other parts of the criminal law to deal with offences like that. So, yeah, I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. And I, th I think the extent to which these are really political questions is evident in some recent cases we've had in the Canadian context. There's There was just a, a murder of uh, intergenerational family members in London, Ontario, for Muslim uh, family members who were killed by someone with affiliation to far-right groups. We don't know quite where that one's going, but we have, you know, the an earlier example was the the murder of six Muslim men uh, at prayer in a mosque who were murdered by a, you know, a pro-Trump uh, individual. And there were ongoing debates about whether that was terrorism, whether it should be prosecuted uh, as terrorism whether it should be prosecuted as, as hate crimes, whether it should be prosecuted as murders. And so in none of the cases that we've seen so far, have they been prosecuted as terrorist offenses, nor has hate motivation necessarily come into the, the decision or the sentencing. Uh, there was some mention, I think, in the mosque murders, but um, it was sort of an aside. So I think that really highlights for me. The, the, the first case, we just actually had a case of misogyny, misogynistic terrorism, a charge being led there, laid there, which I think took everyone by surprise. It was a young man who had murdered a, an Asian woman, I think it was, at a um, massage parlor, for what reason? It's, it's, it's unclear, but he was charged with terrorism motivated by misogyny. That was the first, uh, first incident to be charged like that. And we all sort of scratched our heads because it was just such an odd, odd choice. I think it was, you know, it come to the point, oh, here's a case we can, we can pursue terrorism charges and that'll make everybody happy. And in, in fact, it muddied the waters. I think that's where, you know, when we see those kinds of multiple murders or, you know, mass homicides, that it becomes really problematic where there is that, that motivation really highlights that it is a continuum, hate crime to, to terrorism, but that is also a political definition. And we are veering dangerously towards the boundaries of another podcast involving particular characteristics. I'm just going to pull us right back. Uh, Mark, can, can I just ask you to explore your own definition of hate crime? Because Barb and Neil have theirs, but you, yours is different again. And, you know, you kind of discussed it briefly, but could you just talk about it a little more? Yeah, so I, I suppose I have uh, two definitions of hate crime. One is a sort of a basic operational definition, and then one is more inclusive of the sort of nature and dynamics of what hate and its harms are. So I'd say that the, the basic level, I define hate crime as prejudice-based criminal conduct, and I purposefully put prejudice before criminal conduct. So I don't see that hate crime is criminal conduct motivated by hate. And the reason that I do that is because prejudice-based criminal conduct is conduct that expresses animosity towards individuals or entire communities based on their group identity. And then when we look at that more broadly and understanding what that means, we need to look at what, or identify really what the distinct nature of that is in order to really comprehend and understand what we're talking about when we're defining hate crime. 
And so for me, the distinctiveness relates to harms that are likely to be called because of group identity. So for me, group identity is absolutely central to understanding what hate crime is. If you veer past that, it becomes too nebulous. You lose the potency of the term and almost anything can become hate crime. And I think that might undermine the concept in and of itself. So the harms of hate crime, and, and Barb has already touched on this really, stretch from individual impacts. We know that it tears at an individual's identity. We know that it can result in enhanced levels of certain emotions and it has behavioural consequences. But we know it also ripples out to entire communities of people based on their identity. But more broadly, I think that hate crime has an effect on people's interests as equal citizens. So we know that hate crime has a marginalising effect on people. It might lead to people avoiding certain locations. It might mean that people uh, try to change who they are, try to change their very essence, their identity in order to fit in. And that disempowers people. It affects their personal interest to participate freely in a liberal democratic society. And therefore, it's a form of oppression. And Barb was saying earlier, it's not just about the individual community and even the marginalizing effects it has on individuals, but it has a societal effect as well. And I refer to these as cultural harms. So it undermines key values in society, equality, respect. It undermines freedom. And that can have a, a toxic effect on environments, creating hostile environments. And therefore, you get this repeat sort of cycle of hate going from the individual to the community to the structural level. So we need to understand hate crime not only as an individual incident of prejudice, but as structural harm. If, if, you, if you try and understand hate crime as a criminal incident that has a hate element, I think it doesn't quite encapsulate the distinct harms which are caused by hate crime. And for me and the research that we carried out at Sussex time and time again, when we looked at a total of 20 studies, the distinct harm and its ripple effect and its marginalizing effect comes down to group identity, empathy, shared suffering, and a perception of threat because of who you are, because of your identity. And so for me, that's really key to defining what hate crime is and understanding how we might as a society respond to it, either through criminal law, through policy or other measures. My definition is narrower again. My definition of a hate crime is that a hate crime is a crime recognised by the law, which is committed with an additional hate element, where Mark's uh, concerns with respect to that term, which element is directed at one or more presumed characteristics of the victim. So fundamentally, I think that when we talk about hate crime, we're talking about criminal offences. And I think that this is really important because it places what I think is a really important definitional boundary around what is and isn't a hate crime. And I completely agree with Neil that victims don't often distinguish between hate crime hate speech and microaggressions. But I think that scholars and policymakers and criminal justice professionals can and should uh, distinguish when we discuss and address hate crime, particularly across disciplines and across jurisdictional boundaries. And then using this definition, the expression offences or criminal manifestations of hate speech which includes incitement to hatred or incitement to genocide or Holocaust denial. And these, under my definition, aren't hate crimes. And again, from a legal perspective, to me, this is crucial because when we criminalise speech 
the process is quite a different one and the criminalization of these manifestations of hate speech particularly involve a carve out of the freedom of expression. And so, for example, in a European context, if you look at Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the criminalization of speech in this context needs to be prescribed by law, have legitimate aim and be necessary in a democratic society. So my definition then is a pragmatic one, but also one that I believe is grounded in human rights law. And it's probably, I think, the narrowest of all of the ones that we've discussed here today. Just within like 45 minutes, we've shared like four or five different definitions of hate crime, which I think is one of the wonderful things about having an elastic concept like hate crime. What an audio podcast doesn't pick up is how much nodding there is going on <laughs> across all of it. So these aren't competing definitions, and I think that's a really important point, but they're mutually beneficial and they can enrich our understanding in, 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 in one sense. I do recall, though, a senior professional known to all of you who, this will go back about 15 years ago, saying if you locked a bunch of hate crime scholars in a room and asked them to provide answers to hate crime, they'd spend all day arguing and come out at the end of the day with 100 new definitions of hate, (laughs) no answers. And that brings me to the the last question, because I know we've we've taken up so much of your time and your your brain power, (laughs) which we all have a limited amount of every day. So if we all have different definitions, right, and we're we're all scholars, we're all researchers, do we need a new term to describe something that we all agree on? Do we need a uniform definition of hate crime? How how do we discuss, because if we're discussing hate crime and we all have different internal definitions of what a hate crime is, are we constantly going to speak at odds with one another? Uh, oh, do, do you see what I mean? So do, do we need a, a new term? Do we need a new definition? Is there any worth in a uniform definition? Well, I, I think, again, I go back to, Mark said it well, right? I have two definitions and two purposes, you know, separate purposes. And I think that, well, the specific language may differ legally. I think there is some agreement uh, on what it is we mean legally when when we talk about hate crime. I think when we talk conceptually, we're not really that far apart. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're still concerned with those harms that are shaped by social relations and the exercises of power. I, you know, I don't think the specifics the specifics of the definitions are different, but I think our intent is is very much the same. You know, it's sort of where we were coming from with our paper soon to appear in Crime Law and Social Change, uh, <laughs> um, that that we were, you know, that was really about hate studies, right? We understand, I think we understand the breadth of the uh, of what it is we're trying to make sense of here. So I, you know, I don't know that we need to have the same definition because we still are concerned. I mean, the heart of it is the same, right? Harm. And, and difference and identity uh, and, and all of those pieces that are core. Yeah, and sadly, I just don't think, however desirable it might feel at times, I don't think we can rewrite history and rip up the term because I think we've gone so far in policy terms and it's really important not to lose sight of the value that the term has had in so many different countries in trying to enshrine some recognition of of. of harms that get forgotten and overlooked. So I think there are loads of positives. I think the joy of these kinds of conversations is that we can use the kinds of conceptual nuances and differences that we've shared to influence and uh, hone the kind of policy operational definitions that are there. We can use the kind of shared knowledge and research evidence to make improvements to something that's not quite there in policy terms. So 
that's how I interpret things. I think it's good to have competes, not competing definitions, but a variety of definitions that we can use to shape real world interpretations. I think even in pragmatic terms, those more conceptual definitions can be really important in our conversations with policymakers, because what they do is unpack the significance, right? The dynamics that underlie hate crime, this, the, the consequences of hate crime. So I, th- I think that those definitions are also useful in, in those conversations too. And I, th- I think really it's about making that accessible, isn't it? You know, we can mm-hmm. talk at length about sort of normative this and stigmatization that, but actually unless you put it into accessible language and we talk from our ivory towers to policymakers, practitioners in, in, in a much more effective way, then I think there is still going to be that disconnect. And I know Neil works a lot on this as well as, uh, as we do. So I think though we might be coming to the end of our podcast. I think we are. And I'll tell you what, you guys have set a very high bar for the rest of our guests on this exciting podcast series. It's been an absolutely fascinating and challenging and pro- provocative and thoughtful conversation. So thank you both. We, we couldn't have asked for a more stellar lineup for, for our first podcast. So thank you both so much for your time, for your enthusiasm and your commitment to hate studies as a discipline and to to the podcast so thank you both uh, thank you you. Uh, you're both marvelous so thank you both that's us for today and tune in next time for our next podcast Hate Crime on the Two Islands is a podcast funded by the European Centre for the Study of Hate at the University of Limerick, written by Mark Walters and Jennifer Schwepp, and produced by Mark Walters, Jennifer Schwepp and Kate O'Donovan.